You know, there's a genre of music known as traveling music. It captures the rhythm of the road. The tempo of the song is set to the passing dotted white lines as your vehicle racks up the miles, as you cruise down the freeway. As a teenager, one of my favorite songs was Roll On Down the Highway by that legendary rock band Bachman Turner Overdrive. Do we have a clip of that? I thought we did, but maybe we don't. Roll on down the highway. I guess I could sing it. Wait a minute. <clears throat> no, I'm just kidding. You know, if you've ever listened to the words of that song, it's about a guy who, who rents a tractor trailer, and he's flying down the highway, dodging police and so forth. Maybe that's why I liked it so much. Kind of like what I do going back and forth from 316 to Stone Mountain on Sunday morning. Kind of a theme song for all of us leadfoots. Roll on down the highway. Well, Psalm 120 through 134 is an example of traveling music. These 15 psalms are the Jewish version of Roll On Down the Highway. Here are tunes for the traveler, jingles for the journey. Here is a song for the road. Every year, three times a year, Jews all over Israel were supposed to load up their donkey, their family, and head down to Jerusalem. Three feasts, Passover, Pentecost, and tabernacles were to be celebrated at the temple in Jerusalem. And compliance to this command required a pilgrimage. Psalm 120 through 134 described the pilgrim's journey to Jerusalem, his ascent up to the temple, and the challenges that that trip would involve. In fact, these 15 psalms, they break down into five groups of three, five triads, The first psalm in each of the triad speaks of trouble along the highway. The next psalm then answers that trouble with trust in the Lord. And the third psalm in each triad highlights God's triumph over whatever it was, whatever the trouble was that the psalmist faced. Now last week we studied the first three triads, Psalm 120 through 123. In those psalms, God kindles, rekindles desire. In Psalm 124 to 126, he restores confidence. In Psalm 127 through 129, you remember that psalm, unless the Lord builds the house. There, the Lord rebuilds nations and families. Tonight, we're going to look at the last two triads. The emphasis in chapters 129 through 131 is on how God redeems, and in 132 to 134, how God refreshes. Now, don't you forget that these psalms apply to us as well. For we too are on a journey. Each of us is on a spiritual pilgrimage. We are rolling on down the highway toward heaven. As Paul puts it, we've answered the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Worshiping and serving God is always an ascending and uplifting experience. And there is much that we can learn from these songs for the road. Well, Psalm 129 begins, Many a time they have afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, Many a time they have afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. Wow. You know, obviously, the Jewish people, the Jewish race, is not the only persecuted people group in the history of the world, but they are probably the most viciously persecuted. I'm not diminishing the horrors of what has happened to African Americans or the Sudanese 
or South African blacks, but there's something particularly sinister and diabolical about anti-Semiticism. I believe its origin is satanic. You know, Jews are not the only, have not only been opposed by bigoted men, but I believe the devil himself has targeted the Jews for harassment. Think about this. If you want to get to the Father, what do you do? You attack his kids. And that's exactly what the devil has done. He has targeted God's people, Israel, for particular hardship and persecution. In the Old Testament, when the devil got wind that Messiah would be born a Jew, he did all that he could to snuff out the Messianic lineage. Cain killed Abel. Pharaoh fed the Jewish boys to the crocs in the Nile. Queen Athaliah tried to assassinate Judah's rightful heir. Haman, remember, built his gallows. King Herod slaughtered the baby boys of Bethlehem. And now that Satan has been defeated and Messiah has come, the devil knows that Jesus' second coming will also revolve around Israel. When Jesus sits on the throne to rule the world, it will be a Jewish throne. And he will rule the world from Israel, from Jerusalem. And this is why Satan is still working tirelessly to annihilate the Jews. Here's a short lesson in what Jews have endured down through the ages. In 70 AD, the Romans killed a million Jews. They took 97,000 as prisoner and they glutted the slave markets all over the world with Jewish slaves. In 135 A.D., the Romans banished all Jews from their homeland of Palestine. In 399 A.D., the Roman emperor issued edicts against the Jews, curtailing their rights across the empire. In 439 A.D., Theodosius III issued further orders opposing the Jews. In 630 A.D., the Byzantine emperor Heraclius allowed priests and monks to massacre the Jews that had migrated back to Palestine. In 722 A.D., Pope Leo II ordered all Jews to become Christians or else. In 1066 A.D., Muslims in Spain killed 4,000 Jews in a single day. In 1096 A.D., Pope Urban II proclaimed the First Crusade. And knights all over Europe made a sideshow of slaughtering Jews as Christ killers. In 1290 AD, King Edward I ordered all Jews out of England. In 1306 AD, King Philip IV banished the Jews from France. In 1371 AD, the entire Jewish population of Seville, France was exterminated. It happened again in 1475 in Trent, Italy. In 1483 A.D., the infamous Torquemada launched the Inquisition against who? The Jews. Nine years later, in 1492, the same year that Columbus sailed the ocean blue, all Jews were driven out of Spain. In 1506 A.D., Spanish Jews who took refuge in Portugal were massacred. And on and on, history has repeated itself up until the 1930s when a genocidal German leader named Adolf Hitler launched his final solution that ended up in the murder of six million Jews. The atrocities that mankind has leveled against the Jews are disgraceful and horrific. 
And yet their survival to this very day is a testimony of God's faithfulness to his people. You know, a trip to Israel reveals that the Jews have not only survived, but they have also thrived. Indeed, the Jewish people are perhaps God's greatest miracle. And as we read here in Psalm 129, verse 1, Let Israel now say, Many a time they have afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. He says, The plowers plowed on my back. They made their furrows long. After the Romans captured Jerusalem in 70 AD, a Roman commander by the name of Terentius Rufus drug a plow through the city of Jerusalem. He demolished buildings so that not one stone remained upon another. And this is what Jesus had predicted in Matthew 24, verse 2, when he said, Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. The plowers plowed on my back. The same happened in 135 A.D. by the order of the emperor Hadrian. You know, it's also appropriate, I think, to see verse 3 as prophetic. You recall how Jesus himself was scourged before his crucifixion. You remember the plowers plowed my back. They made their furrows long, as the psalmist puts it here. Jesus experienced the ultimate persecution. He goes on, the Lord is righteous. He has cut in pieces the cords of the wicked. Isn't that interesting? He's cut in pieces the cords of the wicked. The torture instrument used on Jesus was cut up and never used again. Let all those who hate Zion be put to shame and turned back. Let them be as the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor he who binds sheaves his arms. Get a little dirt up on the rooftop there, and before you know it, you'll see some grass shooting up. But, but it's not, it hasn't sunk its roots. It's just superficial. It just kind of gets knocked off and blows away. That, that's, that's like those who hate Zion, those who've hated Israel. Persecutors have come and gone. But Israel remains strong. God has been faithful to his people. He hasn't allowed the enemy to take root and establish itself. His people are established in the land. He says, neither let those who pass by them say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. You remember in Genesis 12, verse 3, God promised Abraham's family, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And thus the psalmist here is saying that those who hate Zion, don't even even bless them, he's saying. God refuses to bless those who curse Israel. Well, Psalm 130 begins. Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. Hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities... O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. If God's keeping score, if God's keeping count of our iniquities, which one of us could stand? Hey, if God's keeping score, all of us could forget his favor. If we're in the ledger, Our good deeds on one side, our bad deeds on the other side. If that's what's happening in heaven tonight, we're in big trouble. 
And yet so many people have this kind of concept of God. This is what they picture of God. That God's there and he's keeping their score and they hope at the end of the day they got more good deeds than bad deeds. That way they'll be accepted by God. That's not how God works. That's how Santa Claus works. You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. He's making a list and he's checking it twice. Going to find out who's naughty and nice. Santa Claus is coming to town. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. That's how Santa Claus works. If God is spending his days tallying up our sins and weighing them against our righteous, our sins against our righteous acts, guys, we are all headed for hell. None of us measure up to a holy God. But here is the Christian gospel. Trust Jesus, and God ceases to make note of your sin. He sees only Christ in your life. This is the gospel. If you receive Jesus, if you trust in Jesus, God will see you in the righteousness of Christ. He'll no longer see any sin at all. He'll see only righteousness. That's incredible. And that's what Jesus won on the cross, and that's what you receive by faith in God's grace. Undeserved love, undeserved favor. That's what you receive when you receive Jesus. It's incredible. God doesn't do random drug tests. He doesn't ask you to pee in a cup so he can check you out from time to time. When he forgives you, you're forgiven, man. Once and for all, all your sin, past, present, future. He doesn't do random drug tests for steroids. God doesn't have the white glove. And he doesn't come down into your life and he wipes his hand over the, you know, the top of your conscience or refrigerator or whatever. Where you're keeping all your thoughts. He doesn't do that. Boy, if he did it, we'd be curtains. Rather than judge us, he credits us the merits of Jesus. We inherit his goodness. And therefore we stand and we rejoice and we rest in his favor. Oh Lord, should you mark iniquities, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Verse 5, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I do hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning. Yes, more than those who watch for the morning. He, he is anticipating the Lord with an eagerness and with, a, and with an expectation that's intense and that's powerful. You know, he's thinking here of the temple priest whose duty it was to offer the morning sacrifice. There were thousands of these priests, understand. And they were divided into 24 orders of 100 priests each. Each priestly order offered the sacrifice Every two years, your, your priestly caste only got the opportunity every two years to offer the morning sacrifice. There were so many priests. Therefore, for you to be the one to offer that sacrifice, it was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for you as the priest. Oh, the night before it was your turn. Oh, man, you were so excited you couldn't sleep. 
I mean, the next day, every eye would be on you. Both heaven and earth, men and angels would be watching you. God himself would be watching you and your work in inspecting your sacrifice. Imagine this priest. He he spends his whole night rehearsing how he's going to make the cut and and how he's going to catch the blood and then dress the meat and then light the fire. He's going through the whole thing. This priest has trained his whole life long for this very moment. And this is how we should wait on the Lord. With that kind of detail, with that kind of anticipation and intensity. Lord, one day we're going to see Jesus. And one day we're going to behold his glory. One day it's going to be our turn. And every eye in heaven and earth will be on us. And today we should be preparing for that moment. You know, the Christian spends a lifetime preparing for the single second when he meets Jesus. She meets Jesus. Our desire is to hear the words, Well done, good and faithful servant. Verse 7 tells us, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is abundant redemption, and he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Oh, there is hope in the Lord. Isn't that wonderful? Anyone else, we should just throw up our hands and quit, man. But there's hope in the Lord. In Jesus, there is no condemnation. Jesus is not quick to judge. He is quick to forgive us and to declare us righteous. In Him is abundant redemption. And one day Israel will receive and become beneficiary of this redemption as well. One day Israel will be redeemed. Zechariah 12 verse 10 tells us that at the second coming of Jesus, Israel will look on Him whom they have pierced. That's Jesus. And they'll believe in him. And in the end, all Israel will be saved. Paul tells us that in Romans. Well, Psalm 131 is one of the shortest psalms to read, but it takes a very, very long time to learn. For it is a song of humility. Anybody here learned humility? Raise your hand. Yeah, if you you raise your hand and say you've learned humility, you're being proud of it, so be careful. (laughs) Here's a song of humility. The writer of Psalm 131, he delights in the simple things. Notice this. Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor my eyes lofty. Neither do I concern myself with great matters, nor with things too profound for me. In other words, the psalmist is saying, man, I've given up trying to know it all. You know, I've accepted the limits to my logic. I I believe it's a turning point in everyone's faith when we reach a point where we can trust God even when we can't trace Him. Where we don't have to figure everything out before we are willing to have faith and trust in God. When God doesn't give us an answer, are we willing to press on? Are we willing to pursue Him and follow Him? That's the question. He's saying, my eyes are, my heart is not haughty and my eyes lofty. You know, know, I've stopped worrying about the profound things that no one can understand. I'm, I'm concerned only about the simple things, trust, faith, walking with God. I think it was Mark Twain who said, it's not, it's not the things in the Bible that I, that I can't understand that bother me. It's the things in the Bible that I do understand that bother me. 
There's nothing wrong with embarking on a quest for truth. In fact, the Sermon on the Mount encourages us to ask and we'll receive. Seek and we'll find. Knock and the door will be opened. But mortal man has to learn his limitations. Deuteronomy 29 verse 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. Now, Too often the motive behind our Bible study is to inflate our ego more than it is to really get to know God. The psalmist has learned to tame his curiosity. He realizes there are times to probe and dig and ponder, but then there are also times to be content in a blissful ignorance. And here's a famous quote. You hear me quote it often, but it's so true. Where God has put a period, let no man change it to a question mark. Over and over in my life, I've, I've, I've searched you know, I've questioned, I've, I've probed, I want to know more. I want to know more about God. But the older I get, the more conscious I become of my own limitations. And, and if he is a God really worthy to be served, I, I shouldn't be too upset that I can't figure him out. Because if I could figure him out with my little pea brain, he really wouldn't be much of a God, would he? He's greater than we are. He, he's more profound. He's more wonderful than we are. But we need to learn to be content. I have a friend of mine. Mike was the best Bible teacher I ever sat under. And that's saying a lot because I've had the opportunity to send under many great Bible teachers. He had a brilliant mind. And he was always probing and searching and questioning. In fact, my friend got more out of the Bible than any other person I've ever met. But the problem was he was never able to curtail his curiosity. And where the Bible remained silent... He looked for answers elsewhere, and, and he developed some real off-the-wall ideas. It, it took him into some strange places. He could never take no for an answer, and he ended up losing his way. Corey Tim Boone spent time in a Nazi concentration camp. You, can, you know she had her share of unanswered questions, questions for God. And yet, here's how she expressed her faith. She said, when a train goes through a tunnel and it gets dark, you don't throw away the ticket and jump off. You sit still and trust the engineer. You know, the last time I talked to my friend, I was reminded of the most profound truth I've ever heard. It's also the simplest. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. You know, to follow Jesus, we need to have a childlike faith. That's the first requirement. As one author puts it, the greatest truths are the simplest, and so are the greatest men. Instead of stroking my ego, true knowledge of God brings me to my knees. The deepest truths are always sealed in a wrapper of simplicity. And then the psalmist adds in verse 2, Surely I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother, like a weaned child, is my soul within me. Oh, a child weaned from his mother's milk is still young enough to know that he doesn't, doesn't know an awful lot. But he doesn't have to. He's learned that his mom is faithful. That's, that's a weaned child's realization. Doesn't know everything, but he knows mom will be there. A weaned child knows that mom will feed him when he needs it. And how he needs it. And this is the conclusion the psalmist has drawn about God. That God will be there when I need him. 
and how I need him. It's been said, you can trust, you can, I'm sorry, you can always trust an unknown future to a known God. I like that. You can always trust an unknown future to a known God. Well, Psalm 131, again, is short in length, but obviously it's deep in meaning. It ends, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. Psalm 132 is the song the pilgrims sang to celebrate the covenant that God made with David. The same covenant that promises the coming of the Messiah. Verse 1. Lord, remember David in all his afflictions, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, Surely I will not go into the chamber of my house or go up to the comfort of my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Remember David's desire was to build a temple for the worship of God. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of the woods. Let us go into his tabernacle. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, to your resting place, you and the ark of your strength. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For your servant David's sake, do not turn away the face of your anointed. You remember, David's desire was to build a house for God, but that wasn't God's desire. David was a man of war. And according to God, it was not appropriate for him to build a sanctuary of peace. God instead would build David a house. A dynasty of kings. The house of David would rise from the lineage of David. And that lineage would climax with an eternal king. The anointed, as the scripture calls it, as the psalmist calls him here. The word in the Hebrew is Messiah. Jesus was that son of David, the anointed one, the Messiah, who will reign forever and ever. He says, the Lord has sworn in truth to David, he will not turn from it. I will set upon your throne the fruit of your body, if your sons will keep my covenant and my testimony, which I shall teach them, their sons also shall sit upon your throne forevermore. David became the father of this royal dynasty. For the Lord has chosen Zion, he has desired it for his dwelling place, This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her poor with bread. David was God's king, and Zion, or Jerusalem, will be his capital city. Jerusalem is still God's holy city. It's the city on earth that he desires. And I hope some of you will get to go with us to Jerusalem this December. He says, I will also clothe her priests with salvation, and her saints shall shout aloud for joy. There I will make the horn of David grow. I will prepare a lamb, lamp for my anointed. You know, the horn was the animal's strength. I think I got a picture. Yeah. That doesn't look good, does it? That does not look good. Yeah. The, oh, my. To please. Please take that off. Okay. That does not look good. The horn was the animal's strength. And here we're told that God will make David's heirs a strong dynasty, a a group of wise rulers. He he will 
anoint and make the horn of David grow strong. Psalm 132 closes. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but upon himself his crown shall flourish. The horn of David will grow strong and his crown will flourish. When Jesus returns, he'll rule over all creation. Again, his crown will flourish. Well, in Psalm 133, the pilgrims now are nearing Jerusalem. And the excitement is building. It's reaching a crescendo. Not only are the pilgrims looking forward to the worship of God, but they're also eager to renew friendships with many people, many friends that they haven't seen since this time last year when they came to the feast. Or at least since the last trip to the temple. And the psalmist is recalling here the good times of pilgrimages past. He's getting excited about the renewed friendships that are ahead. And he says, behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And this is still the case, is it not? How pleasant it is to gather with people united in that supreme desire to love God and to share his love for us. It is a pleasant feeling to sing together and to laugh together and to share our lives together. You know, the world we live in tends to dwell on disagreements. They get together to prove their point and to win their argument. There's too much warring and there's too little worship in this world. But what a sweet alternative here. When believers bind together around the grace of our Lord Jesus, there's nothing in the world quite like our unity is there. How pleasant it is. There's a strength. There's a joy. There's a comfort when God's people stand as one. And I'm reminded of the dad who handed his son a bundle of sticks. And he asked his son to break the bundle. The kid took it, that bundle of sticks and he smashed it over his knee. But none of the sticks broke. He then took it and he slammed it against a tree. And again, he couldn't break the sticks. He put the bundle on the ground. And he tried jumping on it up and down with his feet. But again... The bundle stayed strong. Nothing worked. He couldn't break the bundle of sticks. And that's when the dead walked over and he took the bundle and he untied it. And he began to snap the the sticks very easily with his fingers one by one, one by one. And here's the moral of the story. When believers stay in bundles, we remain strong. We remain invincible and unbreakable. But when the bond is broken, and the enemy is able to break us apart, he can snap us, he can break us one at a time. In other words, there's strength in our unity. How pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It's it's a pilgrimage. I remember when the kids were little and we made our pilgrimage to the beach every year. How pleasant it was when they were all in the back seat dwelling together in unity. How unpleasant it was when they bickered and argued and fought with each other. You know, any pilgrimage, it's a wonderful thing when there's unity. And we're all on a pilgrimage. And how much better it is to be united together and to love each other and to look past our differences and to truly be one, to truly be one in Christ Jesus. You know, if we we break this thing apart and we try to be one in any, any other way, in our political views, oh, no. Oh, we'll all split apart. If we try to be one in our, in our preferences for this or our preferences for that, oh, we'll split apart. But if we keep Jesus the center of who we are and what we do, if we keep his grace 
in front, foremost, purposeful in front of our lives, we can be united and we can experience this pleasantness, this unity around Christ Jesus. This is the key. This is what the church is all about. John Wesley once wrote, the Bible knows nothing of solitary religion. God has put us in bundles. Look around tonight. This is our bundle right here. This is our bundle. It's a good thing. It's pleasant to be here, to be in this bundle. I like you guys. I like being bundled with you. I like being in your bundle. You know, the Bible is really clear about this. It may surprise you. But when God became your father, I became your brother. Scripture never allows Christians to stand alone. We're all bundled together. It's called the church. But I think I talked about that this morning, so I should move on. Verse 2 comments on our harmony. It is like the precious oil upon the head running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron running down on the edge of his garments. Boy, a common purpose, a mutual love among believers is like soothing oil rolling down Aaron's beard. You should go home tonight and you should get some olive oil out of the kitchen and you should go in and stand in the bathtub and just turn and pour it over your head like this and just let it just kind of roll down your, your face and down your beard and get the feeling, the sensation of how pleasant that is. The <laughs> well, you should. Why not? I might do that. What's that? That's weird, you said? Somebody said that. Beard. I, I need a beard. Yeah. I'll wait till tomorrow night and I'll have one. You know, the olive oil used to anoint the priest, the high priest, was made from a special mixture. And there were rules that regulated its use. Let me read them to you. Exodus 30, verse 31 this shall be a holy anointing oil to me throughout your generations. It shall not be poured on man's flesh, nor shall you make any other like it according to its composition. It is holy, and it shall be holy to you. Whoever compounds any like it, or whoever puts any on it, on an outsider, shall be cut off from his people. Notice the three restrictions on this holy anointing oil. First, it was not to be poured on man's flesh only on his beard and his garment. Second, it was not to be imitated or duplicated. And third, it was not to be poured on an outsider, only a priest. And I think this is what hinders harmony among Christians. When we try to create unity around a fleshly or a selfish motive, or a compromised activity, or, or maybe even a purely political cause, then it taints our unity. It can't be poured on the flesh. It has to be poured on the, on the garments or on the beard. When we try to duplicate or imitate the Spirit's work, it also hinders our unity. I mean, true spiritual harmony can't be faked. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. It's not the work of our ingenuity and our efforts. You know, we're never told to create the unity of the Spirit. The Spirit creates unity. We're to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit. Not create it, but keep it. The Spirit gives us that unity. It's our job to make sure nothing interferes with it. And then unity is never to be shared with those who are outsiders or unbelievers. This kind of unity 
is reserved only for Christians. Now here's another description of true unity. It is like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Here it is. Real unity is, is just like Mountain Dew. It's like a good swig of Mountain Dew. That's real. It's what he says right there. It's like the dew of Hermon, Mount Hermon, Mountain Dew. I thought that was really funny, but evidently you didn't. You know, harmony in the church is like a soothing oil, but unity is also like a glistening mountain dew. Love for one another makes everything fresh, does it not? Everything becomes new when you're in love. You know, often we ought not to attend church because we're burned out or because we're run down, and yet that's when we need it most. Unity refreshes and soothes. I'm sure a few of you, probably only a few of you now remember Wayne. He was the little red-headed guy who rode his bike around the streets of Stone Mountain. And Wayne was from a terribly neglected home. He practically left to raise himself. And we would let Wayne hang out at the church. He'd goof around with us. And remember James the day that I raced Wayne down the street. He said he could outrun me. And, and so I went out in the street and raced him. Remember that? Remember who won? Y'all right. Anyway, Wayne used to hang out with us, and we'd have so much fun. And, and often he'd help us clean up the church, you know. One day a visitor walked in, and he was standing there, and he saw Wayne. And you've got to understand, at the time we didn't have too many visitors come to our church. And, and, I, and I looked up and I said, this is a visitor. This is a potential member. That's great. And I cringe when this guy walks over to Wayne and he says, Hey, son. He says, What do you think of the fellowship here? Oh, no. We finally get a visitor and he's talking to Wayne. I was so afraid of what Wayne was going to say. He could have said anything. Literally anything. No telling what was going to come out of his mouth. But I'll never forget Wayne's reply. He looked up at this man and he says, Fellowship? What's a fellowship? This is my family. I thought, wow, couldn't have said it better myself. This is what God wants from us. He wants us to be a family. He wants this church to be a family. Psalm 134. It's a song for the night shift. Any of you guys work night shift? Here's a song for the night shift. Imagine your journey to Jerusalem. You finally get there, but it's after sunset. But rather than wait, until the morning to visit the temple. You're so thrilled to be in Jerusalem. You're so excited about spending time in God's presence. You decide to visit the temple courts in the moonlight. This is what happens to me every time I get to Jerusalem. We usually get there late in the afternoon, but I'm so pumped up and so excited. Usually after dinner that night, I'll take a cab, and I'll go right down to the old city and walk in and, and you know, hang out by the Wailing Wall under the stars, under the moonlight. It's just a wonderful time to be there in the courts of the Lord. And, and so the psalmist, he's there, he's late. He's, he, he wants to go ahead and go to the temple, even though it, it's nightfall. It, and, he, and he comes singing in verse 1, Behold, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who by night stand in the house of the Lord. Bless the 
Blessed is everyone who by night stands in the house of the Lord. The psalmist shouts, lift up your hands in the sanctuary and bless the Lord. You know, perhaps he noticed one of the sentinels dozing off at his post. And so he sort of shouts over there at him. He says, hey, just because it's late, there's no reason not to be blessing and praising the Lord. Wake up, man. The psalmist has just arrived. The sleepy sentinels, they're at the end of a long, long day. And yet he encourages them. Even those of you who stand by night, bless the Lord. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary. And there's a lesson for us here. We should beware. For familiarity can breed contempt. And some of us who spend a lot of time worshiping God and studying the Bible and fellowshipping in church, some of us can take it for granted. They see the new Christians. They come into the church. They're all excited because they've just arrived. And they're excited. It's nighttime to them. They just got there. And so they're real excited. But some of us old folks, you know, we've been around a while. And, and we've been here all day. What is, what is a first experience for them is the end of a long day for us. And, and we can take for granted the worship and the Bible study and the fellowship. If we're not careful, we can fall into a spiritual slumber in the house of God. It's dangerous. We need to be vigilant. This is why those who stand by night in the house of the Lord, they too need to bless the Lord. The Psalms of Ascent end in verse 3 of Psalm 134. The Lord who made heaven and earth bless you from Zion. What a wonderful section of Scripture. Let's take two more Psalms tonight. Psalm 135 is actually a medley of Psalms. It's a mosaic of various passages that appear first in other Psalms, and yet they get woven together here in a new way in Psalm 135. He says, Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Praise them, O you servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing praises to his name, for it is pleasant. And indeed, praise is pleasant. It pleases God's ears and encourages us at the same time. He says, for the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel, for his special treasure. It's interesting here that the psalmist chooses to refer to the nation Israel by the name Jacob. A very flattering name, by the way. The name Jacob literally means heel catcher. Remember, Jacob was a twin. And came out of his mother's womb holding his brother's heel. He was trying to grab first place from Esau, even from the womb. Heel catcher. Came to mean conniver or thief. Jacob spent his whole life trying to steal first place, the rights of the firstborn from Esau. Later, the Lord would change Jacob's name to Israel, or Prince of God. But when God chose this man, he was no prince. In the words of my friend when Jacob was dirty, sneaky thief. In other words, God's choice, like all his choices, is not based on Jacob's character, or Jacob's merit, or Jacob's good works, but solely. God's grace. And this, my friend, is God's basis in choosing you. You were a dirty, sneaky thief. When 
human senses lived under his influence. He's enabled you to clean up their act. You started to live like the prince of God, but never forget who you were on your own. It's wonderful to know that we're God's special treasures, but it's not because we've earned the title. It's because God has chosen us to love us regardless. Verse 5 tells us, For I know that the Lord is great, and our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and earth, and in the seas, and in all deep places. Notice that God is sovereign. He does whatever He pleases. He causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain. He brings the wind out of His treasures. So the psalmist is describing God's superiority over nature. And in the remainder of the psalm, He highlights God's sovereignty over the nation, Israel. He destroyed the firstborn of Egypt, both of men and beasts. He sent signs and wonders into the midst of you, O Egypt, upon Pharaoh and all his servants. Remember, Moses was the mountains, but it was God who did the work. He defeated many nations and slew mighty kings, Zion, king of the Amorites, Og, king of Basin, and all the kings of Canaan, who gave the land as a heritage, a heritage to Israel, his people. Your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your fame, O Lord, throughout all generations, but his name, his name, will endure forever. For the Lord will judge his people, and he will have compassion on his servants. The idols of the nations are still to reward the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes are hand, but they do not speak. They have ears, but they do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouth. Those who make them are like them. Thank <laughs> you. 